right, Johnny, fun conversation today. We're chatting with two of our colleagues from the Flow Research Collective, Dr. Earl, uh, Dr. Carol Grojean and Dr. Brent Hogarth. So Carol is an organizational psychologist. She has uh, three different master's degrees, but also a PhD in organizational system psychology. She spent a lot of time at Microsoft. Uh, she spent the last couple of years working for Flow Research Collective, um, coaching people how to get into the flow state. And so we're going to talk to her and Brent about flow uh, today. Tell us a little bit about Brent. Right, so Brent's a sports and clinical psychologist from Vancouver, Canada. He's also a humanistic existential psychologist, and he's an expert in training flow state, as you said, with the Research Collective, but also mindfulness and self-control, particularly for sport and corporate athletes. And he's got a lot of training in kind of providing peak performance training to people for uh, performance enhancement and also mental health counseling. Yeah. So we, we start out, we'll get into both Carol and Brent's sort of definitions of flow, but also more importantly, how flow relates to, you know, what we're focused on here, which is human flourishing, right? Chat a little bit about kind of integrating the self, the difference between doing versus being, integrating the me, integrating the we, kind of like how to do this, how to find more flow in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love talking to Brent and Carol today about kind of how they define flourishing, how they define flow in relation to flourishing, uh, how we can get more flow in our lives. And also, I particularly like talking to Brent about his work on the dark side of flow. He, he's, he did his doctoral research on this, you know, the, the, the kind of the possible negatives of flow. And I loved digging into that and, and what he had to say about that base of his research. Yeah. In that yeah. Area. Yeah, nice kind of wide-reaching, robust uh, conversation. So uh, we hope you enjoy. Here's our chat with Dr. Brent Hogarth and Dr. Carol Crojean. Hello, friends. Good to see you, John. Good to see you, folks. Good morning. Again, Brent on the other side of the on the other side of the interview this time. It was great. Yeah, this it should be fun. Looking forward to it, man. Lovely to meet you, Carol. Thank you. Nice to meet you as well. So we're, we're going to start, I think, just a little bit more on the personal side. We'd love for our listeners to get to know you both a bit more. Um, Carol, let's start with you. Uh, you both have such interesting backgrounds. Um, I think think you would define yourself. You please correct me if, if I'm wrong as an organizational psychologist. Right? You're an expert in leadership, among a variety of other things. Just share a little bit of your background and sort of how you arrived in sort of this, this peak performance world. Oh, wow. Um, I'm always a little hesitant on the word expert. It's like, I think you said it best once on the FRC. The more I learn, the less, the more I realize how little I know. <laughs> it gets quite humbling at some point. Um, how I got to where I am? Oh, gosh. Well, I think it started about maybe even 25 years ago. I was um, early in my career at Microsoft in their IT organization, and they were investigating um, how to build high-performing teams. And um, I drew the short straw, which is ironic because I was on maternity leave, so how do you draw the straw? But nonetheless, <laughs> it's probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. Uh, I got partnered with a fellow from Carnegie Mellon and the Software Engineering Institute. He was the kind of the father of the capability maturity model, but hated how it um, reams of process, not about how we build high-performing teams and organizations one person at a time. So he inverted it and came up with a new process that I got to put Microsoft, and that started me down the passion of um, really looking at individual and team performance and how um, how do we build that and how do we create those capabilities for people bringing their full self to their work and bringing it to something larger. And I started off in the IT organization 
but quickly after a couple of years, the um, I got tapped by um, a couple of leaders and Bill to go. Microsoft was in the middle of its Vista issue and uh, was brought in to do some performance studies, some time on task studies, run a couple of pilots with some of the engineering teams to figure out what's happening and how do we course correct. And then that just cascaded into a series of like larger and greater opportunities to go in and do um, large organizational re-engineering efforts, um, whether it's our developer tooling. I went in and re-engineered and led the Windows 7 product release after Vista. I've been manufacturing supply chain, I've been cloud and quantum computing, but each one also had me meet with greater um, challenges as you try to change or align larger and larger human systems. So every time I would get I got, I got brought into something. I simultaneously went back to school to try to learn more and understand it more um, until I ultimately got to a point where I realized I can re-engineer large, I can re-engineer teams, organizations, even get to the point of leaders. But at the end of the day, it's what's going on inside each and every person and how they bring their full self and how they choose to lead and participate with others. And there's a longer backstory there, but it basically also led to an existential quest of me really looking at myself. Um, and in that, that's when I stepped away and traveled around the world and studied different cultures. I became really fascinated with culture and human behavior and in some ways, some of our indigenous cultures and how they live relate to the larger world around them or relational non-linear around transactional and linear and um but it all became about me. It was my PhD so it was that kind of that couple decade evolution of education and work and greater opportunities and introspection that got me to where I am now yeah yeah just just real quick did I did you casually name drop Bill just now you, you I think you mean Bill Gates yeah. Love it. Just wanted to point that out. So I, I love how you just <laughs> subtly threw it in there. That was terrific. Um, yeah. So it's, it's super interesting. It's part of why I was excited to talk to you both together because you seem to, in some ways, I think have, have had some similar experiences, but almost sort of inverted. Um, and so Brent, I'd love to bounce over to you. I, I would think you please correct me if I'm wrong. You sort of came to kind of peak performance after sort of a, maybe a spiritual journey, you might call it, right? And, and really trying to get to know yourself. Um, walk us through your background a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I, Kara, I just want to share, when you talked about the kind of relational aspect of your kind of your growth and recognition of the importance of that, I felt like as I looked at all four of our faces on the screen here, we're kind mm. of like around a campfire, just like really feeling like connected to each other and just a really value you highlighting that and um you've always brought that in every engagement i have with you so um yeah so my my story goes back um grew up in vancouver canada i was kind of a a go start from a young age a little bit of an out of control youth um i was a national gymnast so athletics was a big part of my background um but i had two brothers very violent kind of household i was in and out of court as a kid and mm. i was also kind of a big graffiti artist. So I was out uh, trying to get my name to be seen. I was breaking laws. I was getting into a lot of fights. And I, I'm quite poor in school and getting sent to a military school uh, after a court kind of proceeding. And that was the first time in my life where 
I eliminated distractions, um, had structure to my life, and uh, and I, I excelled. I excelled with the opportunity to to grow, to have responsibility, and to, to find focus and, and flow really in, in my academics for the first time. Interesting enough, right as soon as I left this uh, military school, I recognized that all the external reinforcers I had to find flow and structure were no longer there. So I still got I got into a lot of trouble again, no longer kind of having that ex- external enforcement. And so, as I know with a lot of us in life, uh, pain is a great motivator. And after mm-hmm. the end of a relationship in college. Um, I was, I always remember looking at myself in the mirror and just my life and not really, not really liking what I was seeing, not really kind of accepting myself at that point. And so I'd just go to random churches, pick up random books. I was never raised, raised religious or spiritual, but I picked up one book. Actually, sorry, my mom gave it to me. It was a tiny little Wayne Dyer book. Uh, I think it was mm-hmm. called the seven secrets to happiness or something like this mm-hmm. full of room quotes and, and short tidbits. And that kind of lit the first fire of kind of inner awareness for me and, and some spiritual values. I ended up doing a Deepak Chopra retreat and right after that. I went to India and I uh, two weeks stay in a Buddhist monastery and in McLeod Ganj where the Dalai Lama lives. And then I spent another two months there doing a yoga teacher training course and really getting introduced to Vedanta, um, Eastern um, philosophy. And it was that point in my life where the clarity in the Buddhist monastery that the nun would say that, you know, she would define what the mind is, the causes of suffering, the causes of happiness, how we can really purify our karma and just she gave us a path the the teaching in tibetan buddhism is called the lamb rim the lamp on the path it was the first time i had to clear her to, to free myself from my internal suffering and um yeah it uh i would say at that point you know i mentioned earlier seeking self-acceptance i learned that the part of me i was seeking to accept really didn't exist in the way i thought it did that, that ego, that identity I thought I had to repair and change and fix up. I learned to kind of let go of that and create some space. And that gave me the flexibility to take my life in a lot of different paths, uh, to have yeah, flexibility and adaptability. And so, and, and the one thing what led me into psychology is the Buddhist nun, she's a really badass uh, nun named Robina Corkin, <laughs> amazing nun. Um, badass nuns was, are the best nuns I've heard. Yes, yes. <laughs> She said, you know, you are the boss. She said, this is what Buddha says. You are the boss. You are responsible for your karma, for your thoughts. He is just a cognitive behavioral therapist. And so she planted the seed for psychology for me. And and so I found this great program, a master's in sports psych doctor in clinical psychology down in San Francisco. Ended up living in this like hippie burner active in Hayden Ashbury. And that, yeah, introduced and kind of intersected my passions. And um, and then, yeah, I can talk a little bit later on around my dissertation, but I picked up a book in, my, in the library around, um, it was called Transcendental Experiences in Sport, uh, Exploring the Spiritual Underground, something along those lines. And it was all these quotes about athletes talking about being in the zone, essentially being in flow. And one of the things it pointed at is that these athletes didn't necessarily have a philosophy to um, to understand what was going on in those peak moments. 
So they got into a lot of trouble outside of their life, trying to recapture this sense of kind of transcendence. And it really helped me understand myself. And yeah. that's what I did my dissertation on. And uh, here I am a few, a few years later with the Flow Research Collective. So we we should mention, because you both brought it up, like we, we the three of us uh, got to know each other. And then eventually, Brent, you know, you interviewed John for the Flow Research Collective podcast. But we we sort of all know each other through this concept of flow, right? And the flow state. And I think that's that's a pretty good segue into getting into some of the content. I'd love for both of you to maybe sort of, you know, define or conceptualize what you think of, of as, as flow, because I think it varies a little bit from person to person. And, and we all kind of share an operational definition through our work, but my guess is is you each might have some differing views. So Carol, let's let's start with you. How do you think of you know the flow state and and maybe also its importance and sort of overall life satisfaction and flourishing? That's a great question. I've been thinking about that one. And I think for me it's a felt sense that the what of what I'm doing and the who and the being, part of my being, is aligned to my passions. And in that alignment, I'm grounded and I'm present. Um, and in, ironically, in that presence, I have a greater sense of clarity and capaci- capacity for something new and unique to come out of me. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just that felt sense of that integration of being and doing um, and bringing it fully to the work or to to in the present moment to whatever is in front of you in the moment. Um, because for me, I, prior to getting into this and really understanding it, I spent way too much time in my head and in the intellect and not fully in my heart. And for me, flow and flourishing is when the two are in balance in service to something greater that I'm really passionate about. It's really interesting you bring that up. And, and Brent, I want to give you the space to respond as well. But we uh, recently just had a conversation with Dr. Matt Lee and Dr. David Johnson about flourishing. And one of the things that came up is SBK, who you both know and, and I think really adore, and his book, Transcend. One of the things he sort of walks the reader through is that ultimately kind of these quote unquote peak experiences, and we often call flow a peak experience, really is, is a, uh, characteristically a result of um, or at least experiences less self-salience and more kind of interconnectedness, right? And this this being and doing, but shutting things down and just sort of existing as one with your surroundings and, and your response there, Carol, made me think, made me think of him. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Brent, how about you? Yeah. So I often fall back on how Csikszentmihalyi initially defined flow. And for me, I love, he, he described it as order and consciousness. And so I think there's a number of ways we can tie this back to also what Carol said. I think when we're living in alignment with our values, when we're fully expressing ourselves, there's a sense of order and consciousness. We're, there's no uh, data coming in where we have to, that conflicts against who we are. You know, there's no chaos that we're having to reorganize. There's a sense of order or, or harmony. And so that's the simplest definition I've found of flow. So I try to stick with that one, a sense of order or structure and consciousness, clarity of goals, engagement in that. And I'll also just add a little bit of nuance. I think it's important to a lot of our clients, let's say with the Flow Research Collective, they recognize there's a flow state that we talk about where there's this kind of accelerated productivity, uh, 
creativity, learning, um, you know, heightened performance in many regards. And it's these kind of distinct states. But a lot of clients, you know, in our programs really come with also quite a rich spiritual practice. And they recognize that there's this kind of other sense of flow. There's this kind of deeper sense of a pervading openness to experience, uh, pervading sense of maybe being embodied in the, in the moment, as, as Carol was saying, that I think is a little bit distinct from this kind of hyper-focused productivity state. Um, one way I often frame it up is, and I mentioned this in my dissertation, um, so I started my dissertation just about quickly with the quote um, that the, the first and greatest victory is to conquer oneself by Plato. And so in a flow state, we conquer the self, I believe, by becoming so absorbed and engaged in the task that we lose a sense of who we are. So this is very functional and distributed distinct context but then in the more mindful contemplative state we find flow not by becoming so absorbed in the content of what we're doing but by learning to let go of the sense of self and by conquering the self in that way we can be fully present to what's what's here now and find that deeper pervading sense of flow so i think of flow a little bit on those two spectrums but uh i usually come back to that initial uh, definition that it's order and consciousness I said a lot there. I hope uh, no, those are both, they're yeah, both great. great answers. Yeah, I know John wants to jump in here and, and bridge some connections. Those are great. Yeah, that was very clear, Brent. I mean, I also wanted to ask if maybe the way that Carol defines flow resonates with the way you've lived your life and the fascinating story you just gave us a moment ago about your um, your upbringing and your education. Something that really struck me was when you talked about this this fire being lit in your education where you... Um, started walking around churches and reading books and, and read a book on happiness and, and, and a fire was suddenly lit and that's when things changed for you. That uh, reminded me of a quote that's often attributed to William Butler Yeats, uh, education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. Right. And it sounds that, you know, a fire was lit for you and your life has really changed for the better since then. Um, but I mean, the, the way I understand your kind of life story is that you've really focused on kind of both um, being and doing. Uh, in in the sense that you know you've got a lot of training in, in physical activities. You know you've you've worked your undergrad degree was in uh, uh, kinesiology, um, the study of you know the movement of the mechanics of, of body movements. And you trained as a fitness trainer. You you lived in India and you lived in a Buddhist monastery. And, you know trained as a yoga teacher there. And you're a humanistic existential psychologist. So it seems to me that your your life, the way you live it, and your practice and your craft use a word that I know you like to use, brings together being and doing. So does Carol's definition of flow also connect with your, you know, definition from Shikhsen Mahai of this kind of merging together of the kind of the thoughts about life and the way we think about things and our actual activities that we, that we engage in? Yeah, absolutely. I think to be succinct, I feel that the, the path of doing um, is incomplete without the path of being. And I've been privileged. My parents are both entrepreneurs, ended up doing fairly well later on in my life. And I've seen that, you know, the privileges of material wealth uh, doesn't bring happiness, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm my number one client, right? I've, I've realized that I can achieve in sports, achieve in other areas of my life and, and still really the sense of, we could say languishing, this sense of just not, you know, not 
feeling fully embodied and with a let's just say an open heart you know i i haven't felt that even though i could have so many different things and i've learned that i've passed, i have to consciously train that we mentioned earlier to go on carol's definition before our call um i'm gonna expose myself here a little bit um I was listening to a really uplifting song, Dancing Around My Living Room. I also want to dig in on this a bit more, Carol, this, this integration that you, you said in terms of how you define flow on the, on the being and doing. I mean, by that, do you mean the kind of the loss of yourself within your actions, such as you're, you're so absorbed mm. in what you're doing, that this, this distinction between being and doing just becomes dissolved, such that you are one with the thing you're doing, as it were, they merge into the same thing is, is that what you mean by so by because you said integration is it that you integrate being and doing they connect together or is it effectively they merge together and they're just one thing yes absolutely that was very well said right. it is the integration or the merging of them into that present moment um right. that i define as flow and and i think an optimal state of being a human and flourishing would you say that that was much of your experience? I mentioned earlier that your and Brent's experiences seem sort of inverted and that they happened at different stages of your life. But have you sort of been on that journey since you sort of left Microsoft and you said started traveling the world and doing a lot of internal reflection? Has that been sort of your personal trajectory? I mean, I, yeah, I would say that's just been my, that's my quest, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, I, my, the back, a short backstory um, John is in 2014, I was in the middle of that seven and a half billion dollar merger. And, um, you know, not to the degree Brett went, but I had been spending a couple of years yoga and meditation, reflecting on my life, studying Buddhism, contemplating how I was showing up until I just couldn't take it anymore. Because what happened is my external state of doing at work was pulling more and more in my ego and pulling more in me. But because of those contemplative practices I had started doing, and I had watched both my mom and dad die of fluke cancers. Mm-hmm. And now my husband was suffering through leukemia. And so my state of being inside of me started waking up and pulling, almost like that midlife crisis, pulling at you to like, there's got to be something more to life than just work and more and consume and like, right. And, and, and I was caught in the middle of this war and I couldn't take it in the, I couldn't take it anymore. I, I was overwhelmed. I was burnt out. I was stressed. So in the middle of it, in the middle of that merger in Helsinki, I just quit. I up and quit. I might've said a few choice words, but I up and quit <laughs> and walked out and, you know, and the next week, uh, I cut off all my hair and gave away all my things. And the following week, I found myself in the Serendanda region of Nepal. And I woke up one morning and I opened up my tent doors. And in front of me, because we had hiked there the night before in the dark, was the Himalayas. And I wept for hours because what had happened in that moment is the sacred and the profane in my life had flipped. The two, the 20 years I had spent consuming and amassing and gaining and wanting more and building, you know, acquiring more, like all of a sudden that sacred of my life became so profane. Mm. And I realized I could have gone my whole life and never seen the beauty and the majesty of this, these Mm. beautiful beings in front of me, the the Himalayas. Mm. And I wept for hours, not able to rectify, right? What was happening? And then I turn to the right of me and I see these kids on this dirt field with a partially deflated soccer ball. And I'm amongst their village. So I see how they live and all they need and could want for. And But they're out there and they're playing. And between 
them and myself, I see my son home in a warm, big house, nothing he needs, nothing to want on the ground, checked out of life mm-hmm. on his Xbox. And I asked myself, what was it about my culture that led me to who I had become? Mm-hmm. And what would it take for me to transform my definition of myself as a means of changing the world around me? Because we don't see the world as it is, as it, but as we are. Mm-hmm. And that doing, 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 like, I was like, what is, why does my culture value this yeah. and not value this majesty and this connection? And that's what I spent the years just trying to like, I mean, the PhD was almost became an excuse for me not to go back to work and to continue to unravel what, what was it about my culture, right? And what do I need to do or what do I, how do I, how can I become that more integrated, flourishing human in a human system? Um, and I also just as a parent, like, I was like, oh my God, how can I do this to my children? I'm, yeah. I'm actually preventing them from fully living a life. Yeah. So I came home and destroyed the Xboxes, which not my son, <laughs> oh, wow. my son wasn't so happy with. Like, oh, thank wow. God for YouTube because we had to learn to build a fence. We learned how to can food. We learned how to drywall a garage. None of it looked really pretty, but it's like you have to get reengaged with life and back into that being while you do. I think wow. you, I think you just gave us the episode title: "The Key to Flourishing: Destroy Your Xbox." <laughs> how how did you just destroy it? Did you like sledgehammer this thing or? I mean, that, just defenestrate it out a window. What'd you do? <laughs> Smash, nice, okay, for, for nice. listeners, uh, Carol just gesticulated. That one, the two of them. Wow, this must have been quite a lot of fun, actually. It must be quite, I mean, I, I take it, did the kids watch? They'd be quite traumatic. <laughs> no, they didn't watch. Was it, was they didn't it, know. Was there some catharsis no. in there with the, the sort of the subconscious connection of Microsoft? Yeah, I may have or? gone through a, a bit of an anger phase, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Angry at my culture and like working through it all. Yeah, it's certainly a journey. I have a question to try to to tie to tie what your question was, John, to what Carol said there to what I think is, and maybe you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here. When I think of positive psychology and I'm reading through the research, a lot of this for me is certainly the um, systematic study of a lot of religious practices. The, and and mm. for instance, a lot of Buddhist practices in particular, because that's the kind of perspective I come from. And so you asked it to Carol around self-transcendence, I believe, right? And when I think of, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, the Buddha mentioned that we suffer to the degree to which we are out of touch with reality and we harm others to that same degree. And, and the root ignorance that they talk about in Buddhism, right, is this sense of grasping to an inherent sense of self, like this belief that mm-hmm. this I and putting it above others, praising it, you know, protecting it and how, you know, to deroute that delusion and move towards uh, a beingness, uh, interconnectedness with others is, is really to many regards the path. I want to just quickly comment, Brent, you know, the, <clears throat> you made the comment about positive psychology specifically. It seems to you that it's kind of just, you know, systematizing the study of religious practices. And I don't remember what year, probably 2016, 17, something like that. Um, I was at a school working at a school in Los Angeles and was, was teaching positive psychology, was interested in sort of exploring positive education. And so I got in touch with the university of Pennsylvania and you both know I'm, I'm sitting in Philadelphia right now and got to know Dr. Karen Rivich, who's the director of resilience training 
at the UPenn PPC. Mm. And uh, you mentioned badasses earlier. I always tell her she's a badass uh, psychologist and researcher. And uh, she's got a great book on cognitive behavioral techniques, among other things. But we, we were sitting having lunch one day on campus. And she told me that her feeling is that positive psychology is science that's catching up to grandma. And what she meant is it's really just science that seems to be confirming what most of us all knew all along and that our grandmas always told us, right? Some simple ideas like just give it time, right? Hedonic adaptation, right? Oh, see the glass half full, cognitive framing, right? You know, some of these different things. So that's what popped into my head when when you made that statement. But uh, I want to give space to Carol. I don't know if you wanted to respond to that at all. It seems like we're drawing more and more connections, which we've done in previous episodes as well, to sort of emphasizing a little bit more of the the me and a little less of the, excuse me, a little bit more of the we and a little less of the me. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely, it's, the, it's, again, I guess it's the integration and the melding of it is that, you know, I mean, I don't want to go into the whole we are one and different philosophies, but um, Brent's right. In some ways, it is that kind of more contemplative study, be it Buddhism or others. Like I think he and I have both read various parts of Upanishads and Ramayana, and I mean, there's so many great texts out there. But it is, and that's also when I think of the indigenous studies. It is that part of like it's relational, and um, there's so much wisdom out there. So many grandmas and so much <laughs> wisdom. <laughs> Right. And how do we how do we how do we create the space to hear and integrate that wisdom? And it's hard in a day that is sucked up with these things and constant noise and distractions and others vying for our time and attention. You know, a lot of this starts with at least I'll speak for myself, but I'm sure perhaps Brent could speak to it as well. It's creating that space where you actually can drop in and listen to something greater. Mm-hmm. and breathe yeah okay. and i think that's where your human flourishing journey begins yeah gaining perspective on these things yeah absolutely and I'll i mean just, as a quick note sorry john chick sent me hi so the founder of flow theory which is action-oriented he said that you know he called it you know too fast to, to reach enlightenment or uh, he said complexity of the self one he called it the the activa so the path of action and then vita contemplative so more contemplative path he actually over indexed he said it's there's greater benefits in over indexing towards more of a contemplative path to, to find wholeness and um from a guy from my understanding quite an action-oriented philosophy of you know uh of flow um i think there's some something important to take from his his insight on that too sorry john i cut you off there sir no, 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 it's fine. I mean, just to go, go back to your question as well, Brent, you asked about positive psychology and its research on uh, religions. I mean, it's certainly the case that with Shikhsen Mahai, there was a lot of research on yogis in particular. And he often talks about the, the, the practices of, of yogis as, you know, really people who are heavily, um, you know, in uh, educated in and, and engaged in the practice of doing yoga to an extremely high level. Um, of them as being paradigm or exemplars of flow, getting into the flow state in an exemplary way within certain religious traditions, uh, draws upon other religious traditions too. And and you find that as well in the work of Seligman. But there's also in in the work of Seligman, positive psychology, Martin Seligman, there's a lot of studies on uh, people in the military as well. 
emerging as, as kind of subject matter. And then in more recent times in positive psychology, there's of course now thousands of people have taken the questionnaires that the University of Pennsylvania have online. So the, it's broadened a lot, but yeah, you're right that religious communities and religious history and religious um, studies occupied a, a large part of the subject matter earlier. Mm. Um, I want to now connect up, uh, I want to go back to Carol's story about destroying the Xbox and connect <laughs> that up with some of Brent's research as well. So a you you're both familiar with and you both work on things like flow triggers you know the activities in life that can trigger flow states and things that can really generate a high state of flow and games are often things that can bring one to a state of flow and video games are one of those you know especially with children they get immersed in these things and if only we could harness that level of focus and and a desire that people often have to play from a computer game and channel it into something more productive like certain um you know le- like learning in schools let's say or certain work activities you imagine the potential that could be achieved in those areas now, i know brent that in you've done some research on the dark side of flow so bad consequences that can happen as a result of flow and i remember you told me one of the areas you looked at was addiction to video games i think yep and that maybe connects with perhaps what Carol was worried about, that your your children were maybe too much in the flow state, but in a bad area, in an area where you didn't want them to be in the flow state, namely just absorbed with their screens. And you want them to be more productive, fulfilling, intrinsically rewarding and important activities with their time. So Brent, can you tell us a bit about your research on the dark side of flow? Yeah, I think this will actually connect a lot of the things we've already spoken about. So we've mentioned how the benefits of transcending a sense of self Right. Um, but now here's the dark side of it. Uh, we can transcend and lose our sense of self in the activity that's not going to allow us to live in alignment with our values, yeah. to not make a benefit um, to society. And so flow, is, as we know, is a, it's a neutral state. I think, um, yeah, it's a, I forget the exact quote I was going to mention there from Csikszentmihalyi. But he he uh, correlated to nuclear fission. Right? And so there's good that can be done with it or, or or negative. And so when I think about the dark side of flow, simply I understand it as uh, how flow can lead to a loss of self-control. So we get so absorbed and engaged in a task that we no longer think about the long-term consequences of it, right? It's an, it's an intrinsically rewarding activity. We want to do it. We want to keep engaging with it. And we've lost a sense of self of who we are. And so therefore, we're not conscious of the, of those consequences. And so, yeah, some of the research, video games is a great one. Um, there's even research in... Um, there's uh, exercise addiction. There's research in essentially when, because there's a loss of sense of self, we no longer interpret the r- risks of things appropriately. So again, example, like action adventure athletes, they're no longer interpreting the risk they they can do to themselves. You know, obviously of, of fatalities, which is quite often in action adventure sports. And when I think of self-control failure, sadly, that's probably the, the greatest self-control failure is accidental death. And so we see that often and often. And so what I'm pointing at here is that, yes, it's a state where we get so absorbed, we get addicted to it and it can lead to negative consequences. That's one angle of it. The other angle, and it's going to tie again to this concept we were talking about a little bit earlier about self-grasping, is this down the, the backside of a flow state 
we're no longer are we feeling all the euphoria and joy of being in flow. And now we feel this, maybe it's boredom, maybe there's some depression, some anxiety and yeah, this come down. Right. And, and we, because we've been so focused in our culture and society to, especially within, let's just say action adventure sports to get that high, that this state can feel so unmanageable. And that's where I think more of having a contemplative practice to be able to accept, to be present, to come into that being, as Carol has mentioned earlier, is so important on this high performance path to both have the tool of of flow, to get engaged, to get absorbed, but also to have mindfulness to be present on the come down and also to really appropriately choose when do we want to transcend the self and get absorbed in the task we're, we're having, right? That's a big piece that I think we all need to be mindful of as coaches and as people listening. We find flow in contexts that have great structure and, and want to, you know, be mindful of that structure and then know it's safe, jump in and lose ourselves in it. And then when we get out of that structure, you know, reset and say, okay, I'm no longer on the football field. What are the rules of how do I stay self-control now going home and being with my partner, whatever it may be. So yeah, that's a little bit of the research on the dark side of flow. And yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions. It's very fascinating. And again, as for my life story, my, my, I grew up fighting over and over again, street fights, going to court. And that those are the peak moments of my life as a teenager and graffiti, jumping on trains, billboards. And like, those are the moments that uh, created my sense of identity. And I, I got so such a, a joy and rush out of them that I had to, you know, I'm still my number one client trying to manage finding flow and, and presence and deep connection and, and moving in other areas. So, yeah. It's kind of my whole life story and wrapped in my dissertation there. Right. Have you read Dopamine Nation yet? I haven't, no. So it just kept popping in my head as you're talking here. I know, I, I think all of us are fans of uh, another very popular podcast, Huberman Lab. And he's had Dr. Anna Lemke on to talk about this. She was also, I just heard her on the Next Big Idea Club's podcast. That was wonderful as well. But she's an addiction specialist, uh, an MD at Stanford. Um, she was really one of the primary, I think, advisors for The Social Dilemma on Netflix, right? And uh, part of what she argues in this book, I want to make sure I kind of summarize it accurately here, and then I'd love to get your thoughts and responses, is essentially what, what she calls a pleasure-pain balance, and that we are actually sort of um, made, evolved, whatever terminology you want to use, to sort of teeter and totter back and forth. Right. And that what we're seeing more and more is a society and a lot of people who aren't willing to sort of, whether it's teetering or tottering, back to that come down, <laughs> right? That unpleasant state. And what we often do is we just keep filling it, right? And chasing more dopamine. And then paradoxically, and this could be through video games, social media, food, you know, whatever it might be. Um, what we paradoxically end up doing is we raise our dopamine set point, right? And in doing so, we require more and more and more of these things, even just to feel normal. And subsequently, we actually always feel miserable. And this is basically kind of the entry point to addiction. I think I summarized that more or less. I see you shaking your head here. So that must resonate, huh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Carol, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. I have lots to say too. Yeah. I mean, just 
I think I don't think you have to add the word normal. It's just that they to feel to feel anything, right? I think they'd lost. Like when I think of the dark side of flow, I think of people who have lost touch with reality, and they're ungrounded. So when I think, or when I at least look through the lens of my children and gaming and gaming addiction, or phone or other, I think they lack purpose and meaning and belonging and community. And the more they do it the more they lack those and the more they lose touch with reality and more begets more. So that's why what you said, Nick, resonated with me because when more begets more and we lose those things, we will do anything to feel anything. A little Mm -hmm. bit like the Stanford Mm -hmm. prison experiment, right? Mm -hmm. Right. We will take negative attention over no attention over being ignored. So I think the I don't know if that's necessarily the dark side of flow, but the dark side of flow does is a sense of untethering and becoming ungrounded. Like we see a lot of people who go have an experience, a transcendental experience, and actually don't come back from it. They lose touch with reality and and almost slip flip right and go str- all in on that other world or that other sense or, you know, in indigenous a lot of indigenous uh, realms, it's somehow also called the wall of grief when you reach a point where you realize your behavior on the impact of the larger world. And the majority of people do, particularly when we don't have elders in the community to help facilitate the wall of grief. And an elder is not an older, they're not the same. People turn back in to project that feeling, that ungrounded back in on their society and some fundamentalist belief, not that they have to be fundamentalists, or they ride along the wall of grief and keep wounding themselves, project instead of project. So I love that. I think earlier somebody talked about the concept of elders and community and people who can guide it, especially at times like this. But yeah, that's for me, the dark side of flow is that continually untethering and losing a sense of self, of being in a world and connection with other. And then we'll do anything to fill. You know, I, I love that, Carol. And, and the one thing, you know, to, to, try to answer that question that you also pointed to Nick. And I think this ties back to what you're saying, Carol is I'm a big fan of reading some like history of Gandhi and his path to Satyagraha. I'm not sure if you gentlemen have heard that, that term before. Um, I'll describe it quickly here for the listeners too. Um, but he talked about what he called the law of suffering. And he talked about how through suffering, we, 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 we gain moral, um, we can purify our soul or we can learn moral truths. We grow through our suffering. And you're kind of pointing to Nick, how this culture, our culture, myself included, we're constantly seeking joy. And then we lose out in learning these deeper truths or wisdoms about life. It's very interesting. Um, You know, we talk in a flow research collective about this flow cycle. And we talk about flow as in this kind of on and off switch, but it actually starts off with a stage of suffering a stage of struggling. And I know some callers are a big fan of Nietzsche and how Nietzsche kind of really celebrated people's suffering, you know, kind of acknowledge, you know, this terrible thing happened to you, this terrible thing happened to you, like what a life you've lived, you know? And I think that's a perspective that we could all, you know, appreciate more and more in this culture um, that kind of has forgotten those lessons. And it's a hard thing to say out loud because then when bad things happen, you have to take it on the chin. But uh, I think it's something I'm definitely learning moment to moment as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, some of my hardest experiences have been my largest growth, right? Sure. Sure. 
So completely agree. Yeah. Well, this is this is great. This is fascinating. Thank you for sharing these perspectives on on flow. And let's try and now connect this up with human flourishing. So you know, we we all obviously agree that flow is is something intrinsically good, something that we want in life, and something. That, and the research suggests it can significantly enhance well being and performance, fulfillment of potential, and fulfillment of, in the sense of life satisfaction. It has many wonderful things about it, but there's a dark side of flow, as, as Brent's pointed out, and connects perhaps with the, the reasons Carol destroyed uh, those Xbox. <laughs> um, but so, you know, I mentioned flow triggers earlier, things, you know, activities in life that can bring about a flow state. Is there perhaps, I'm trying to figure out where, what we might learn from this about where the, the warnings lie with flow, where we should stop or take a moment because it could rather than promote human flourishing, actually hinder human flourishing and be you know, depleting of well-being if it has this, given that flow has this dark side. So, I mean, starting with you, Brent, because you, you know, you focused on your, on your research this area of the dark side of flow. What, what are, if you like, the flow warnings, things that we should watch out for with flow? So it's actually something that brings us to optimal human performance and experience rather than depleting human performance and experience. Yeah, great, great question, John. Thanks for bringing us back here. So the um, so just very briefly for the listeners, when we talk about a flow trigger, what we're mentioning is um, con- things in your context or internal ways where you can drive your attention to be in the present moment and you can reduce the amount of thinking you're doing so that you can shift into being in that fully embodied, fully present state and kind of get out of your own way, as we mentioned here a bunch of times, transcend the self. And so when I think about, you know, the 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 obstacle or the the challenge to overcome the dark side of flow is oftentimes learning how to regulate one's emotion effectively. Okay, we're very driven by our emotions. So ensuring that the actions that we're taking are in line with moving towards our values, despite the emotional state we're in. So if I'm feeling angry, I'm not engaging in activity simply to release uh, or to change or control my emotional state of anger, I'm moving towards this activity because it's in line with my values. That's my compass. So when I mentioned earlier, video games, internet addiction, porn addiction, uh, gambling, all these things of the dark side of flow. If people perhaps had more of the capacity to be present with what's the emotional state they might be feeling, maybe there's a sense of loss or a sense of boredom, as opposed to trying to shift that emotion simply by engaging in a high flow activity, if they're able to be present with that and refocus on what's a value that they can find deeper meaning in, I feel that will bring more human flourishing and avoid uh, some of these dark side elements. And, and so I'm going to quickly and and we can build on this all together here as a therapist i work from a framework called acceptance commitment therapy and and the focus of acceptance commitment therapy is to help overcome this concept of experiential avoidance this tendency again of wanting to avoid or change our emotional state and so in act we learn how to get out of that game altogether and refocus on our goals. So my answer very simply John would be development of mindfulness which underneath that is emotion regulation because we know with more of an emotional balance or equanimity it improves this uh, um, it improves perception and goal engagement and I feel that will lead to greater self control greater flourishing uh, and living in alignment uh, with the values. So that's my my simple 
answer. I, I, I'm curious how you guys might be able to build off that or, or challenge it. Yeah. I, I want to let Carol respond. But I'll just quickly say, Brent, it's interesting you bring up experiential avoidance. Next week, we're chatting with Dr. Todd Cashton. I don't know if you know Todd's work at all, but he's big on, on research around experiential avoidance. Uh, he's got a, a wonderful, wonderful book, I think cleverly titled The Upside of Our Dark Side. And it's really about mm-hmm. sort of the advantages of unpleasantness uh, more generally. And so one of the things he really rails against is, is exactly that experiential avoidance. So we're, we've got a series of questions for him about that exact topic. But Carol, how about you? I mean, for me, it's simply when somebody starts to define themselves by the state or the activity, as opposed to, to that's something I am doing or creating, but that's not who I am. Um, and I think once people start to blur the lines and define themselves by those things, um, then, th- then they start entering the dark side because then they want more of it because that's how they define themselves. It's just, it's, you, we're seeing it in youth as well when they start showing up and lose sense of themselves versus being defined by the avatar they create and who they are online. And then they become, and then we're back to being more ungrounded and losing a sense of reality. So I, the, my warning, my biggest warning sign is just when somebody starts to define themselves by the activity or what they're doing. Or actually, corporations too—they define themselves by their title and their role, mm-hmm. and not that those are those are positions I occupy, but those are not who I am. Right. So flow is defined as a state in which one loses one's sense of self, but if you know, it can have a dark side where that becomes definitive of who you are as a person, such that you can't regain your sense of self out of it. You just go in and you can't get out again, and that might be a way of visualizing the dark side of flow. Perfect. Yeah. You, you don't come out of it. You don't, it, it's, we're back to that integration of being and doing. You lose that integration. Yeah. Okay. Nick, yeah. Do you want to get on this? Yeah. I, I'd like to take us in a slightly different direction here because this is a wonderful conversation. It also strikes me as, um, in a way, I think we all enjoy somewhat academic, maybe even slightly abstract or esoteric. And I think, you know, Carol, you're doing really interesting work right now around, I think, you know, what you sort of titled flow for everyone. And it's got me mm-hmm. thinking about just how do you, how do you bring some of these concepts that might feel a bit abstract, right? I think, I think people can understand what the flow state is on a somewhat tangible level, but when we try to teach people sort of well, how to do it and then say, well, you, you know, to Brent's point earlier, you kind of, you do it by not doing it <laughs> in some cases, it's hard to wrap your head around. Right. So will you just tell us a little bit more about some of the current work you're doing around kind of flow for everyone and, you know, how you're sort of translating some of these ideas for populations that don't necessarily come in with, with these sorts of language or, or academic training. Sure. Yeah. Two endeavors. One is in Cameroon with a group of people that I spent some time with a couple of years ago. The other one that we're kicking off that's going to be more structured around some of the work we do at Flow Research Collective with a group of uh, Arapaho Nation and some um, other marginalized um, communities in Wyoming. And so the question is, is really how can we bring the awareness of some of these practices to people who may not have the conditions or have the experience or have the education. And more, more importantly, actually, it's not about education, it's about the awareness mm-hmm. of some of the habits and practices of our daily lives may work against and often do work against us trying to accomplish something greater for our lives and for our communities. And so how can we 
raise that level of awareness and work with them and coach with them to understand how to build greater habits and practices, how to find their passions, right? Too often right now, particularly in, in youth around this world, they, they struggle between the desires and the passions of their heart and the shoulds of their culture, yeah. and they get lost. And that loss can manifest in many different ways, depending upon the cult, how the culture supports them and the communities that they're in. And some of our marginalized communities are just really struggling. And so how can we help the youth kind of rise with through, through some of this awareness and these practices and what Flow for Everyone can offer? Um, and help them create a community amongst themselves to support each other as they move through the next couple of years, in this case, particularly in a community college, because many of them are the first generation to actually even have the opportunity to go to college. Um, and they come from different backgrounds. And so really, how do we how do we take this knowledge in a meaningful way that can help them um, kind of kind of recognize those passions of their heart and what they really want to do and be in this world and then build the habits and practices in their daily life. You know, positive psychology basics, the things even simple as the importance of sleep, nutrition, hydration, and exercise towards our performance, um, interruptions and distractions, and actually a greater awareness for how this is taking us away from some of the things we're really passionate about. Um, and, and a lot of times it's just awareness and conversation. So, I mean, you might have just referenced there when kind of talking about some of the, the fundamentals of just good physiology, right? But uh, my, I'm right. curious, where do you start with some of these groups? So, you know, you're working with this group in, in Cameroon, you're trying to help them kind of increase awareness, get more access to sort of understanding and, and sort of cultivating these states. What are some of the starting points? Because this, this will actually bleed into some of our other questions for the audience, which is sort of like, Okay, how do I do this? Right? What's my starting point? Like some tangible, some some tips and strategies and things of that nature. Oh man, oh Brad, I look forward to helping me with this one. I mean, <laughs> for me, it also it always it always starts with slowing down to hear their story and meeting them where they're at. I mean, I think some of the most I've ever been in my life is the time I spent in Southwest Cameroon, which is the uh, oppressed region in the middle of a civil war, and these people who have so little um, would give everything to me, would protect me, have so many passions. You know, it, it just it humbled me in so many ways. So it's a matter of actually stopping and hearing them and meeting them where they're at, and then where do they what what do they have the capacity? Because in some cases, there's some of the thing practices we may bring to them, which don't even make sense in their right. world. So you have to start where they're at, not what you know. Yeah. And then you try to bridge the gap between like, okay, where are they at and where do they want to go to? And what do they have the capacity either either in their beingness, right? Or in the conditions of the environment they're in. And how do we help them get to that get to that next step? I mean, that's not necessarily tangible, so I might need some help. And no, I can give a whole bunch of advice. We, but yeah, we can, we can come back to sort of more general, you know, tangible steps a little yeah. later. But I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. And I think that's I would say the, ta the, the tangible is where they're at and what's their passion and how do they want to show up and where, where do they really want to move their life towards, right? And begin there. I think it's always helpful, you know, Chicksen Mihai described how. Each culture develops flow activities as defense mechanisms against the chaos of society, of life. So each culture already has their well-ingrained flow practices, right? So whether it's dance, uh, certain rituals, say yoga, meditation, whatever it may be. So as when working, you know, with, uh, you know, a, a 
a unique demographic or culture, I'd always be really curious to kind of go into the culture like an ethnographer, right? To really try to understand, learn from them, what are the practices they've already well established. And then I always try to like a, a bait and hook when I work with uh, demographics. So I get them really excited, learn all I can about, you know, their flow practices and then say, all right, um, you know, this is something you've developed very well in this context. Uh, you know, there's, what's the experience like? And they'll say, well, I'm, let's just say the concepts are, or the principles of flow. I'm very present. I'm engaged. There's a sense of joy. And then we can start to do how, let's say, a practice such as, let's just say, mindfulness or meditation can train up these similar qualities so that they can take it into a new context. And so that's how I would often kind of explore it, like show how they're already finding flow, where they already find it. Maybe for our listeners, it's gardening, maybe it's driving, maybe it's working on their car, maybe it's, uh, it's sports or deep conversations. So show how they already get it understand the qualities of what's showing up there and then we understand now with positive psychology that we can train all of these up and then how do we kind of bring that back into a new context and the big thing for me with flow training is recognizing that flow happens in high flow activities it happens in contexts where there's clear boundaries there's clear rules to be followed or something to be learned you know, it's you don't walk around life just serendipitously falling into flow. You might do that traveling or whatnot, but typically it's when you're really engaged in a specific focus. And that's why military school was very helpful for me. That's why sports has been helpful for me. Business for Carol, studying, all these different things, coaching sessions. So when we're trying to find flow is, you know, understand where they find it, show that that can be trainable and then create context with clear rules and boundaries so they know what the what the aim is and and i believe that's like a kind of a little bit of a path that we can go on yeah great thank, thank you, you both yeah thank you um this is a fascinating direction this conversation is taking and it connects very well with something else that we'd like to ask you so you you've both clearly got a strong interest in exploring optimal functioning and flourishing outside of what we might call the traditional channels that is to say areas such you know western you know intellectual history and, and and western culture and um areas such as positive psychology um and the the most common ways in these are studied so you know for example brent you've mentioned your various experience going within certain you know so you know practices that are often characterized as being um you know eastern practices such as you know meditation mindfulness yoga and so on and other sort of spiritual practices and Carol, we mentioned your work worldwide um, in various cultures, learning, you know, applying your craft, if you'd like to there, and then developing it in, in certain other contexts. So we're, we're particularly interested to ask, what are the most valuable lessons that you've each learned from these various suits in which you're involved that speak to human experience and human flourishing that you could share with listeners? Carol, let's start with you on this one. One of my favorite quotes comes from... Um... Mary Catherine Bateson, and she says, I'm not what I know, but what I'm willing to learn. So honestly, when I go into many of these cultures, particularly in the past couple of several years, it's I'm actually not going in there as a teacher. I'm going in there as the learner. So whether I'm trance dancing with the Bushmen or in Cameroon with some um, beautiful people learning how to recycle and clean villages in an oppressed part of the world or a vision quest or sweat or even we'll just call it plant medicine. Right. 
I'm, I go in with the beginner's mind um, to see what can I learn from them. And that broadens my horizons um, and broadens like just my experience of life in beautiful ways. And then when it comes to my practice, it's then how can I actually return that gift to the person that I'm working with? Well, that's, well, it's, it's, you can talk about the plant medicine. I think we should anyway, because, you know, Brent, <laughs> Brent, Brent serves also an advisory role around, I think some of these things as well yeah. and, and has an interest. So let's, let's go down that path. Rabbit hole. Okay. Well, say more like, I mean, the, the, for me, a journey, whether it's an ayahuasca or, or, or psilocybin or some of those other plant medicines, what they offer me is the experience of, um, something greater than the tangible scientific world that I live in. Um, I don't necessarily do it often and I don't go there to escape this world. I actually go there for a different type of experience. Um, in some cases, a greater wholeness. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm unraveling a rabbit's hole or a rat's nest right now, but, um, my greatest teachings has come when I come up against adversity or a fixed belief that I didn't even know I held on to, um, and, in, and am shown or given the opportunity to experience something greater than myself for which then I have a greater, I, I come back from that with a greater gratitude for life and living and a greater awareness of that there's so much more than we see and experience on a day-to-day basis. I think as Stephen writes about and other research written about, there's 11 million bits of information available to us in any given second. And we only consciously process 150 to 200, which is 0.002%. So it's just those any of those ways where I'm sitting with other cultures in a contemplative position or maybe taking something that expands my consciousness, do I learn to expand and grow? Um, and in that, I have less and less fixed beliefs. I once wrote an epistemology paper for my graduate program, which asked the question, what do you truly believe? And I, and I literally said, I don't know if I actually believe anything anymore. Like I started writing the question because my mom had just passed away and I thought, okay, I believe my mom is dead. What do you truly know? Epistemology. What really know and believe. And I was like, I know my mom is dead, but then I actually had to start unraveling the whole question. Well, what does it mean to be dead? If I still have a memory of her, is she truly dead? What is life mm. and what is death? Mm. Like that just unraveled me. So I'll pause there and let Brent respond. I'll just, I'll quickly jump in Brent, just because the names come up twice, but you've both mentioned Steven. Let me just clarify Steven Kotler, executive director of the flow research collective and, you know, journalists and, and best-selling author. And, and uh, I think, Think, I know you didn't love the word, Carol, but I think we can call him a flow expert in many ways as well. So <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. He's good with that yeah. one. Thank you. Yeah, Stephen Collar. Yeah, you know, John, to your question. So I would say, you know, exploring different cultures, different uh, lived experiences, uh, you just get to get a, a wider perspective of what our human potential is. And I think, you know, you know, for instance, I've obviously gravitated towards uh, some spiritual practices, spiritual communities, religious, a uh, little bit in, in, in the Buddhist realm, at least, because their capacity for kindness, for joy, for laughter, for peace amongst, um, you know, the chaos of life is something that I wasn't really exposed to young when I was younger. And, and that 
you know, that transformed what I thought was capable for me. And so I think that's the the great joy for me is like exploring to see the potential and then, and what you learn from, you know, these great teachers that this is something that's tangible that anyone can achieve. And, and that was really enlightening for me. And so to kind of connect that back to psychedelics, you know, uh, I read a lot of research by Robin Carhart Harris, kind of one of the leaders in this field. And he's got a couple theories that kind of describe generally what occurs in a psychedelic state, which I think are, are helpful to just share. So he talks about what he calls the uh, the the entropic brain or and rebus model. So I'll start with the rebus model. So the rebus uh, stands for relaxed beliefs under psychedelics. So when we're in this psychedelic state, these heavily weighted beliefs are kind of veils of perception uh, become lightened. These like, if you imagine them like weights, they become lightened and we can go into the neuroscience. He suggests this is the somewhat of a, down regulation of the default mode network, this sense of self, how we typically interpret reality so that all chaos and world can be structured. But in this psychedelic state, it, it, it loosens, the veils open up. And, and, and in this state, we, our openness to experience can really drastically be, be shifted. And we know openness to experience is correlated to mental health. We've mentioned experiential avoidance earlier. It's kind of a trans-diagnostic feature of mental suffering when we can't be present with what shows up. Openness to experience is kind of inverse to that. Um, it's related to absorption, so strongly correlated to flow. Uh, openness to experience is, is correlated to kind of an appreciation for art, uh, for music, for just the richness of life, for sexuality. So it really helps us have a more, yeah, a richer experience in life. And so the rebus model is a nice one to think about. And um, the last one I'll just share is he's got a recent article talking about how in a psychedelic state, it's a pivotal mental state. It's one where there's increased neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. So there's an opportunity in that psychedelic experience to really integrate, as Carol's mentioned a number of times, the insights that one has experienced into an enduring way of perceiving oneself, others, and reality that um, we can achieve without psychedelics, certainly. Um, but for many people, it can, it can really shatter some of those heavily weighted beliefs and perceive uh, the world anew. And um, yeah, so I'll leave it there and uh, happy to jump on any other questions on that on the field there. Well, well this, is, no, this is great. We can, I mean, we can tie together, it seems, your two um, points quite nicely. Carol's was you know, openness to, to learn, um, you know, about one, what one can learn from some experience. And yours, Brent, was kind of openness to various channels of possible ways that one could learn or transform oneself and not be dismissive of certain things because they don't fit one's worldview or experiences so far. So they're kind of a push from the subject towards an openness to learning in the broadest sense, it seems, is, is the, the kind of one of the most valuable lessons that you've both taken from your various um, pursuits in, in various cults. And that connects quite, well, it connects very directly with a question that we like to ask all of our guests, which we call the flourishing question, which is what's the, in, in the case of this interview, what's the one lesson on flow and flourishing you want our listeners to walk away with and what might be a practical step for putting that lesson into action? 
So, Carol, to you first, the flourishing question. What do you think? Mm. I think a human flourishing is a human who's following their passions, despite the shoulds of the culture around them, that they're remaining true to their heart. Um, And that's my greatest hope for my children. Um, And and then it comes back, as Brent said, it's that openness to to learning and to, to being present to life. The gift of life is to experience it in its fullness. So authenticity and presence, if you like, is a way of capturing that, being true to self and being present in the thing that you're doing. Perfect. Yes. Okay. And Brent? Yeah. Uh, just, uh, well, I want a quick comment. It also strikes me because we've been talking a lot about openness. Um, I think a lot of times, because you mentioned passion, Carol, a lot of times passion gets mm-hmm. confused as something that is quote-unquote discovered. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we hear these great stories you know, Brent, you just mentioned you got a poster on your wall of Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, you know, like, oh, the first time I picked up a basketball, I just knew. And like, those are beautiful stories, but those are the outliers, right? Like, I think passion tends to be developed over the course of time and remaining open to experiences and interests and pursuing curiosities and sort of like pulling on the thread, as it were. Yeah, yeah. The more experience, the more you pull, right? And the more you pull, the more you experience. And it just becomes um, almost a self-referential flourishing, right? And sometimes you pull and it doesn't feel great, but you still learn. And sometimes you pull and it it opens you up to something um, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Right? I think, what is it Joseph Campbell said? The privilege of a lifetime Mm. is being who you are. Mm. And so I think a human flourishing is a human who is being who they are. Love it. Brent, the flourishing question. Yeah, it's a great, great, tough question. Um, sitting back here, hoping Carol keeps going so I can have- I know. Why me first every time? <laughs> We're hard hitting over here at Flourish FM. We ask the tough questions. You know, I think for me, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, is uh, to know that in any area of your life, uh, we can we can continue to grow and expand and reach new heights and being present and achievement and meaningful relationships of increasing positive emotions of finding flow and engagement just knowing that we have this uh, this great human potential and and it's our our birthright to to fulfill it and in that in that process in that journey um, to recognize that the challenges that show up internal or external um, do not nece- do not need to be obstacles to that fulfillment of one's human potential, uh, whether it's emotions and recognizing that they're transitory, whether it's life situations, recognizing we have the resources within us to overcome them. And, and so to not limit ourselves uh, would be the, the biggest thing that I hope um, that I can share with my clients is just the continued belief in our unlimited human potential and, and to not get caught up in their head and out of our life by trying to manage our internal world, but uh, allowing kind of giving up that game, turning off that struggle switch with our internal world and just more and more uh, returning to, to here and now and uh, our connection with others around us. I think that's beautiful, Brent. One other thing, I don't remember the quote exactly, but it's so spot on. Every client, I'm sure I expect to speak for you guys as well. Every every client I coach and every person we talk to, like their greatest fear is to be on their deathbed and not have their live their life fullest, right? And so that's really flourishing is just 
whatever it takes, whatever I learn, wherever I go in life, it is the fact that I am, I am um, on that path of learning and growing and, and achieving this. I think somebody once said, find what you're willing to die for and be willing to live for it. It's that's such a perfect thing to sort of start to wrap up with Carol, because you're absolutely right. Um, you know, for context, like we always see sort of these, these surveys with some information before we meet a client. It's, it's, it's almost to the point where you don't even need to read that question because it's no. almost across the board, exactly. dying without impact, dying, feeling unfulfilled, dying without, you know, reaching my potential, making a contribution. It's, it's really, really interesting. I'm glad you brought up that point. Yeah. And I mean, it connect, connects quite nicely with your practical bit of advice you gave, Carol. Part of it was often, you know, it seemed to be captured as authenticity and presence, or at least that's how I understood it. You know, being true to yourself, what you're doing, present in the things you do. And you mentioned that about um, not, you know, wanting to regret things on your deathbed. Interestingly, uh, Bonnie Bonnie Ware in her, in her book, the Bonnie Ware in her book, the five, top five regrets of the dying, a, a great book um, where she, you know, she met many people who were at the end of their life and asked them what their biggest regrets of their life were. The first of those five that she writes about is effectively one that's captured by the notion of authenticity. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me, which, and then she also says another main regret people have is I wish I hadn't worked so hard that people had focused on things other than work, which connects with, you know, some of the main things you've focused on um, Mm -hmm. throughout this. Yeah, beautiful. Um, hopefully, our children are listening. Hopefully, your kids are <laughs> listening. Or fu- yeah, present or future. <laughs> yeah, love it. Yeah, when when we throw out the episode, you just have to shove it in their face. Say, listen, to this <laughs> um, absolutely. Listen, we want to be respectful of your time. Know you got to bounce. This was uh, this was really a wonderful conversation. We really appreciate you both okay. for for showing up and and bringing your expertise and knowledge and really incredible lived experience as well. Not only the scientific expertise. Um, I've learned a lot and it's been a lot of fun. And I think our listeners will take a lot from this as well. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Carol. It was, it was a, a lot of fun sitting around this campfire together here. So I was just going to say thank you, Brent, for yeah. bringing that up in the beginning because it very much felt like we were storytelling yeah. and sharing around a fire. Um, and I appreciate that. Yeah. Good. All of you. Good. All right, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bet, yeah. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that, so your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work.